continuing in our series in AD. So how many are actually watching on Sunday nights? NBC asked me to take a poll. No. It's good. It's kind of fun. I like it. Acts 19, 1-6. Not where we're going today, but Acts 19, 1-6. This is after the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is on his way through the interior of what today would be Turkey. And he comes upon this group of believers and he says to them, he's, they're talking about baptism and they're talking about the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, you know, what about the Holy Spirit? And the response is, well, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And frankly, that, when I first came into the vineyard, that was basically where I was. I was in Acts 19. I didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Nothing bad against the, the churches I'd been involved in. It just wasn't something highlighted. And yet when I came into the vineyard, I realized that the Holy Spirit is you know, part of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, crucial to my life as a believer. So I want to spend the next half an hour together focusing on the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit does, who he is, uh, some, of the manifest, manifest, some of the abilities to... <laughs> it's going to slow down, a lot of coffee. Some of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit and... Um, Pray that I can go through relatively quickly because we might have time for questions. And then we'll see what the Holy Spirit wants to do among us. Let's begin by reading Acts chapter 2. I'll read. You can uh, listen, read up there, and then we'll watch Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. This is the word of God. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound... A, sound came, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one have heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those would all be present-day Iranians, just for the fun of it all. Residents of Mesopotamia would be Arabs, Iraq, uh, etc., Judea and Cappadocia, uh, Palestinians, Turks, Pontus in Asia, you've got some Greeks in there, modern day, Phrygia and Pamphylia, I can't remember, Egypt and the parts of Libya, now we're into Africa. All these people from all these places were in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit came. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, were here. we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? It's a big moment. The arrival of the Holy Spirit to live within God's people, to empower God's people, to carry the word of God into all the world. And the Holy Spirit started it like this. Let's see what it looks like on Sunday nights. <laughs> Obviously, uh, they have, they've missed a few parts there. Uh, looked like 12, not 120, but hey. Um, that's just a reminder that what we're watching on TV is TV. And what we read in the Word is the Word of God. Uh, but it's fun to watch. If you've got, uh, hopefully you got a little piece of paper on your way in. If you didn't, raise your hand. If you need a, um, can, who could help me there? Logan, could you help? They should be right out the door. Yeah, so you just would have a little um, 
some notes where I'm headed today. I'm not going to go through all of these. And you'll notice I got really Bible happy, okay? I just started flinging verses everywhere. Um, It seemed appropriate for the morning. So I want to walk through the first page of this handout and um, talk about some aspects of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to go through the first part relatively quickly. Lots of scriptures that you on your own can look to, and if you've got more questions, email me, come talk to me. I'd love to talk about it. And then take a little bit more time on the, on the second part. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is a person. When we look all through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, we see that the Holy Spirit manifests all sorts of characteristics of human personhood all the attributes of human personhood. The Holy Spirit thinks and he speaks, he leads, he can be grieved. You look at all those scriptures that point that out. Sometimes the Holy Spirit's talked about as the Spirit of God, sometimes as the Spirit of Jesus. Remember the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One of these mysteries of our faith, one God, three persons. Each is fully God, and yet there are not three gods, there's one. And then your mind goes, because we can't understand the mystery of the Trinity. We can't understand the mystery of how the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together. But we know practically that the Holy Spirit is the way that Jesus is present with his people today. So you wonder, how can I walk with God? How can I experience God's power? How can I experience an intimate love relationship with Jesus, the Son? It's by the Holy Spirit. So until this time that we just read about and watched, the Holy Spirit was on particular people for particular purposes at particular times. That's all through the Old Testament. And then in the Old Testament, through Ezekiel and through Joel, you see this promise. Hey, there's coming a time. There's coming a time when the Spirit won't just be on particular people for particular things at particular times, but the Holy Spirit will be given to all flesh. All people, old, young, men, women, children, everybody gets the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so you see that the Holy Spirit was present at creation. This is like particularly powerful for me. Right in Genesis 1, you know, nothing is except for God. And it says that, that there's, there's this, uh, the earth was formless and void. What does formless and void look like? I don't know. How could they describe nothing but potential? And it says that the Spirit was hovering over the earth. So there's the Holy Spirit at the beginning of creation, and then the Word of God speaks, bam, and all that is is created. Order comes out of chaos. And from the beginning of time, we see that what the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit brings power and order out of chaos. So you think about your life before you were a Christian. Maybe there was a lot, right? Some are going, oh, don't talk about that. (laughs) There was a lot of disorder. There was a lot of chaos. And the Holy Spirit comes and he leads us into order. He leads us into integrity, into shalom, into peace. In the Gospels, uh, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is so clearly linked with Jesus. I could do a whole message on the way that Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, how Jesus experiences the Holy Spirit, 
how that's a foreshadowing of the way that we as believers experience the Holy Spirit. The point is that it's a promise for all people. So specifically, Luke 3.16, Luke says one is, well, actually it's John saying in Luke, one is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Baptize, the word used there just means to immerse, all right? Just means to be completely plunged in, filled all over the place. So the point of baptism in the Holy Spirit, which can be a, a cantankerous phrase in the church, the baptism of the Holy Spirit simply means this, to be completely immersed in the Spirit of God, every pore filled, like a sponge completely surrounded and filled with water. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So uh, what is the baptism or filling of the Holy Spirit? As vineyard people, some of you might be wondering, what do we believe about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And I'm going to tell you what we believe. And you can look at the scriptures and ask questions. I think the Bible is clear that when we place our faith in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. So upon conversion... When whatever day that was that you asked Jesus, come into my life, I'm a wreck, I need your salvation. When he came in, he brought the Holy Spirit. The Godhead set up residence in your soul, within your spirit at that point. So anyone who has faith in Christ has received the Holy Spirit. In this sense, we're all baptized, see the air quotes? We're all baptized in the Holy Spirit when we receive Christ because he's present, he's in, he's there. That's the deposit of all the things to come. That's how we're secured. The death of Jesus is applied to us. The resurrection life of Jesus is given to us and we are secured in the Father's love in heaven forever and ever. You don't get to kick the Holy Spirit out. Try as you may. He'll be there nagging you with righteous thoughts all your life. Don't you love that? I personally love that. So uh, after Pentecost, if you're following, I'm on 5B already. After Pentecost, those who were filled with the Holy Spirit, look all through the book of Acts, were filled again and again and again. So that's where I think we can safely say that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that whoosh, that comes where we're empowered and an ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit, we can use those interchangeably. Now, many, many people have had an experience after conversion where they feel like, man, I knew the Spirit was in me, but I got whacked. I got filled. And I think it's perfectly appropriate scripturally to say that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's the filling of the Holy Spirit, the words we use are not as important as the reality. When we believe in Jesus, the Spirit's present. The command from Paul, Ephesians 5.18, be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. So somewhere between you get it when Jesus comes in and go after it and receive the Holy Spirit and be filled over and over and over and over again, that's what we're longing for. I just... Don't think we need in the vineyard to have fights about when and how and all of this, but we, we believe that we get the Holy Spirit at conversion, and then we can be filled with the Holy Spirit over and over and over again. You see all those scriptures where there was a continual filling of the Holy Spirit. 
There's no one model in the Bible. So you search the New Testament, and I don't think you can find one model in the Bible that shows us what, after the Holy Spirit comes, conversion, reception into the church, into faith, water baptism, spirit baptism, filled with the Holy Spirit, signs, wonders. I don't think there's one model for how that works every time. You'll read books, and they'll show you models, and then I will show you verses that break the model. I think if there's a model about how the Holy Spirit works in the life of the believer, after uh, conversion, it's John 3.8. The Holy Spirit blows where he wills. The Holy Spirit blows where he wills. So we, we want to understand the Holy Spirit. We want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but we don't want to control the Holy Spirit. If you read in Acts, they got a lot of trouble for trying to do that. I won't go into that, but death was involved. Okay? How are we so far? Good? Just curious. Any, like, raging question right now? We kind of want to see if we're all together. That was a risk, wasn't it? Can't put my head down before anybody says anything. Okay. So what about tongues? What, what, about, what about tongues? I mean, we saw it right there. I thought they did a pretty good job of that. It's clear from the scripture that tongues on, in, at Pentecost were languages, known languages. Because the Iranians and the Iraqis and all these people and the Greeks and the Cretans and the Arabs, they all heard in their own language the deeds of God being proclaimed. <clears throat> so in Acts 2, at Pentecost, tongues were a sign to people that the Holy Spirit had been given away. Tongues were a sign in, in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost. But tongues are not the evidence of conversion or the filling of the Holy Spirit after Acts chapter 2. I want to say that real clearly. Tongues are not the, capital letters, only evidence of conversion or filling with the Holy Spirit. Tongues now become an evidence, a manifestation of the filling. There are people in this room now who have a vibrant, growing relationship with Jesus, secured in heaven, fruits of the Spirit popping out of their pores, who have never spoken in tongues. Because it's an evidence, not the evidence. So if anyone tries to tell you, wait, you've never spoken in tongues? You must not know Jesus. I'm just going to very kindly tell you, they may love you, but they're wrong. The evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit is the powerful life of God manifested through God's people. The evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit, the filling, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit is the powerful life of God manifest through his people. That means the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, are increasingly found in your life. And the, um, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 14, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, constant. Those gifts are, are popping out, are evident in your life as a believer. We are clearly commanded to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. So I want to go uh, drill down. We talked about who the Spirit is, how, what's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, how does that all work with conversion in Jesus, What's the sequence? God does whatever he wants, right? What is tongues? A sign in Acts 2, 
an evidence, but not the only one now after um, Acts 2. But what about tongues? Like specifically, how does that work in the vineyard? Because you probably are wondering that. So I'm down on the first page, 6a. Tongues were a sign at Pentecost. And now tongues can continue as one of many gifts. One of many gifts. Not the only gift. Clearly from Paul, not the most important gift. But one of many gifts. And Paul says, 1 Corinthians 14, something, something. You can't forbid tongues. Like the Bible says, you're not allowed to get up and say no one can speak in tongues. Because it says, well, except babies. It says, do not forbid speaking in tongues. So clearly, Paul decided at that point, by the Holy Spirit, this is a good thing. This thing, strange as it may seem, should continue on for the church to bring edification to people, to bring words from God for the body, and to continue sometimes to be a sign to the unbelievers. So uh, you can distinguish in the New Testament between public tongues and private tongues. And I'm not going to take a whole lot of time here, but I think it's a, it's a pretty clear distinction. You see Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 talking about public tongues. When you gather, if a couple of you, if somebody has a tongue, they should give the tongue and then they should pray that it's interpreted. So the way we do that here in the vineyard, if you're worshiping or at some point in the, in, the, in the service, you think, okay, I think I've got this manifest desire, sense that there's a tongue, there's an unknown language to me that wants to bubble out. It might be tongues you've received as a gift. It might be just, wow, there's something weird in here. That's just what it's like. You would come up to someone in the front row or find a leader and say, hey, I think, I think, this would be bold, right? I think I have a tongue. We've, this happened in our church a number of times. We'll discern, okay, um, are we ready for that? Is this, is, this, is this good? Are you sure? Okay, what we'll do is we'll, we'll let you come up here and stand up, not on the microphone, because it scares the bejeebers out of people. You ever been in when someone just blurted out in tongues? But we can't say no to it. So if you have a tongue, come on forward, and we'll let you give the tongue you'll be speaking in a language that you don't know. And then, as the Bible says, we'll ask for an interpretation. Because the Bible says, if you speak in a tongue, pray that you might interpret so that the church can be edified. So what's the purpose of public tongues? That someone moved by the Spirit of God would come and give uh, a message in an unknown language to the church and someone else moved by the Spirit of God would discern or interpret what God was saying. What's the end result of that? We are all utterly amazed. And the interpretation itself, according to 1 Corinthians 14, will edify us, will encourage us, will build us up. So that's what a public tongue would look like here in the vineyard on a Sunday morning or maybe in your your small group on a Wednesday night. And we get to practice. So... Someone has to be thinking at this point, are you kidding me? I would never, if I didn't know for sure, come up and do that. How embarrassing. And I would like to say, how do you think they felt in the Bible? Do you think it was crystal clear for them every time? 
Why did Paul have to tell them how to do it? Because it was practice. So if you were to come up and say, I think I have a tongue, and you speak in that tongue, and we ask for an interpretation, and, you know, crickets. You know what I'm going to say to you? I'm going to say thank you so much for your courage and your boldness. It seems like there's no interpretation. So either that was not from God, but thanks for trying, or someone's out there and is afraid to give the interpretation. Right? Because it turns out we're a bunch of humans. And guess what? Then you go off saying, I listened to God as best I could. I stepped out. I was affirmed. Next time, maybe it'll be the Lord. And what do we lose? Absolutely nothing. What do we gain? A step of faith. A step of faith. So that's the purpose, scripturally, of, uh, of public tongues, to edify the church when interpreted. Now, there's this other kind of tongues, this other kind of prayer language. And you see this in the Bible. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14.2, 1 Corinthians 14.4, Romans 8.26, Ephesians 6. These are what many people would call devotional tongues. This is a gift of praying in another language that you don't know. You're not praying with your mind, but it's not mindless. It's just greater than your mind. It's the Spirit of God praying through you. Read Romans chapter 8, 26 and 27. It's the Spirit of God praying through you. And it's a gift that God gives to many, many people. That gift of devotional tongues is not to be just blurted out any time because without an interpretation, remember, there's no edification. But clearly, Paul says somewhere in 1 Corinthians 14, I don't remember, or 8, I'm getting confused. Look on the paper. I'm glad I pray in tongues more than all of you. So clearly, this was a big part of Paul's devotional, intimate life with Jesus is he's praying in a language to God that he doesn't know. And the Bible says that when you do that, you yourself are being edified. It's like doing an exercise that, you, that feels like nothing, but when your heart rate gets up, good things are happening. It's kind of what devotional tongues is like for the believer. Uh, And it's a form of petition. When I'm praying for someone up here on the ministry team, I often am praying in tongues underneath my breath, quietly. Because what I really want is for God's prayers, the Spirit's prayers, to be given to the Father so the Father can do what He wants. And what do I get to do? I get to be a vehicle. I don't know it all, but I get to be a vehicle. It encourages me, it builds me up, it, it lets the power of God be released through me. So tongues, if you're following the next page, 6F, tongues transcend the limitation of human known language. They're not mindless, but they're not dependent upon the mind. I know that one's hard to get. So tongues are not mindless. It's not just mindless gibbering. It's a language that God gives you at a time. And it's a language, in my experience, that can be developed. And it's wild. But, it, but that's not dependent on the mind. So Paul says, I'll pray with my mind. God, please pray, help Mary Margaret. She's a beautiful person. God bless her, right? Or I'll pray with my spirit, praying in a spiritual language. And I don't know what I'm praying. But those words are going straight to God. 
So the context of 1 Corinthians 14 is the excessive use of tongues. When you read all those instructions from Paul, it's the excessive use of tongues. And so he puts some limitations on that. So uh, down to 7b, uh, private tongues appropriate during worship and ministry time, any of your personal time with God in traffic when you'd rather say bad words. <laughs> I'm not kidding. If you're going to say words that don't sound normal, say spiritual words. <laughs> if it's not to be interpreted, if it's not a public tongue for people, it should be done quietly and when you're praying for others and making the Holy and asking for the Holy Spirit's guidance. Now, I just thought, I can't go through this without this idea of singing in the Spirit. Because some have, have been in uh, charismatic churches. We're one of those, in case you didn't know. Charismatic churches that, that experience a time when, you know, there's such a, a sense of God's presence that those who are worshiping begin to worship in that private deno- demo- devotional tongue, but more loudly not to be interpreted, okay? All I can say is this. I can't find this necessarily specifically in the Bible, though you will see singing with the Spirit in there, but I can't find any place in the Bible where it says you shouldn't do this. And my personal experience is it's awesome when the Holy Spirit comes and you hear this melody woven together in languages unknown by people, the Spirit superseding all, and it kind of goes up and it goes down, and I just, it's an, it's an unbelievable experience. Not something I think we can just say, all right, let's ramp it up now. <laughs> but not at all something that we should be afraid of as a church. And it's, there's just a, a palpable sense of awe and mystery that comes. So there you have it, my views on singing in the Spirit. Let's get practical. And this is really the easy part, because you'll see, Uh, 8A, B, and C, I've used words like believe, trust, relax, receive. To be filled with the Holy Spirit upon conversion or after conversion or every moment of every day after that, to be filled with the Holy Spirit is something that we open ourselves to and we ask for, but we cannot make happen. It's the Spirit's work, it's God's gifts, It's God's guidance. It's God's fruits being manifest in us. So one, trust that God wants to give it to you. Just believe, Acts 1.8. Jesus says, wait there for the power. So clearly Jesus wanted the disciples to be empowered by, filled with the Holy Spirit. Two, trust God that when you open yourself up to the Holy Spirit, he's going to give you good things. Some people are like, well, I don't want to open my spirit to any old, who knows what will happen. We're talking about the Lord of the universe. We're talking about the creator. Luke 11, Jesus says this, you know, if you as a good father wouldn't give your son a snake when he asked for bread, you wouldn't do that, right? Fool your son? If you're not going to do it, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit? to those who believe, uh, Luke chapter 11. So we trust that God wants to do that work in us, wants to give it to us. And then uh, finally, relax. You can't muster up a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Well, I guess you can. But in the end of the day, you'll walk out and you say, that was me, not God. I don't want that. 
If you look in the Bible, you find that when people are filled with the Holy Spirit, I'll put out a challenge. I put in my notes, rarely in the Bible do you see the filling of the Holy Spirit without some sort of manifestation. Rarely. Maybe there's a time. If you can find it, show it to me, because you can help in my study, right? You, you just don't see that. The Holy Spirit comes, they prophesy. The Holy Spirit comes, they speak in tongues. The Holy Spirit comes, they shake. The building shakes, they cry, they shout, they preach boldly. Somebody gets healed, they see a vision, they get a word. The scripture is given boldly. I mean, all of those are the types of things that happen when the Holy Spirit comes. Joy, ecstasy, falling down under the power of God. You find all those in the Bible. So when we ask for the Holy Spirit to come and do what the Holy Spirit wants to do, any of those are possible. But the fact is, if you ask God to do his work, you can trust that God will do his work in you. We are commanded, commanded by Paul, continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's our power source. It's what we have to give away to the world. And we long for it. Let's stand. Actually, don't stand. Sit. <laughs> Let me pray. And then I'll invite Jacqueline up and we'll go into a time of ministry. Let's just pray. God, thank you. You have released your Holy Spirit. We saw it on TV. We read it in the book. And God, we know that your Spirit is manifest in and through us. So Holy Spirit, we, we invite you to come and to do your work. Thank you for faith released and joy released in this place right now. In Jesus' name, amen.